Let me ask you this question. Do you find hard to keep trusting God in the midst of these circumstances? Even as in the aftermath of these atrocities yesterday, uh, you know, such darkness places surround us. Are you feeling maybe disheartened, feeling uh, perhaps weak, feeling threatened? Are you suffering perhaps emotionally? Are you hurt? I think this passage today really helps us. Um, not only this passage, but actually the whole book of Hebrews come to our aid when we think of it. I think it helps us to shift our eyes from the right here, right now, right me, towards uh, the future and towards Christ. I hope by the end of today, you'll be ready to hold fast to the hope there is in the gospel of Christ, that it would give you great patience to endure these moments of this current drama of this life, and that you would be eager and steadily and ready to wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. I think this passage will also fill us with faith, with love for the current time, and with hope, with renewed trust. It's a great word of exhortation, being a great encouragement for the road ahead. Personally, um, Hebrews is one of my favorite books. I think it's for its eloquence, for its high literary style, you know, the Greek that is used there. And, but above all, I think the way that Christ is highly exalted throughout its pages. Even uh, we're using going through Hebrews in our Bible studies. Um, but this specific section that we're covering today from uh, verses 13 to 20, 13 to 20, uh, I actually managed to sneakily skip it in our Bible studies. Nobody complained, nobody noticed. So everybody will have the sense of novelty tonight. I do not claim any comprehensive knowledge of it. Actually, if you have any questions after the sermon, you can come and ask. Well, we have uh, uh, Brad here, and we have Dan. Brad's not here today, actually, but we have Dan that could help us with some questions. But in all seriousness, uh, before jumping into the text, I think uh, it would be helpful for us to consider the context of this book and as, uh, of this passage. That's why we had some of these readings of the Old Testament uh, and we could have many, many more because it's quite hard for us to compress such uh, vast knowledge that the author of Hebrews has of the Old Testament uh, in this brief time that we have. Hebrews is a very rich epistle, uh, letter. Actually, even calling it a, a letter, it's not the most suitable term because it's filled with uh, applications and expositions and it has this sermonic tone that is more like a sermon, actually, especially its main body. Some commentators have suggested that we need to read Hebrews as a theological, that we need to understand Hebrews as a theological document, to hear it as a sermon, and to read it as an epistle. And uh, I think sided with Romans is probably one of the most uh, interesting books in the way that it treats uh, the covenantal character of God and how it has unfolded 
through scriptures, the way that it relates to the Old Testament and the New, shedding also new light into it. In terms of the authorship, um, we don't know for sure uh, the, the author of, of this letter. Uh, some would say uh, Paul, for uh, historically, uh, is considered the author of, of this letter. Uh, there's some problems with that. Uh, apparently, there's no consensus amongst the scholars. Some would say, look, Luther at the Reformation uh, suggested Apollos. There's even a mention of Priscilla being the author. We, we do not know. Uh, but what we know, as I've, I've commented before, is that this author is very familiar with, uh, with Hebrews, with the, the Jewish cultural and uh, traditional ways of doing things. And uh, in terms of its theme, I think from the first page to the last page, it's all about the superiority of Christ. And its opening sentences, actually we saw it this morning. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. This sentence alone is breathtaking, isn't it? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's wonderful. So we see it developing from the start. Uh, Jesus being um, higher than the angels, higher than the prophets, higher than Moses. And then here, this section that we are going to tackle today, we see this concept of the priesthood of Jesus. As the author seems to be speaking to this Hebrew audience, and therefore the title of, of, of the book, they were particularly... Uh, interesting themes like the sanctuary, the temple, the sacrificial system, and this concept of priesthood. And another thing that relates to these uh, original readers is that they were probably facing persecution, and there were probably more persecution to come under the Roman dominion. To the extent, as we read this warning of apostasy, that some were turning away, that they, they, they are being tempted to turn away and even to fall into disbelief. So I hope you, you grasp this concept and you bear these things in mind as we dig into this passage tonight. The first point that we are going to cover here, uh, and I think it's covered in verses 13 to 15, it's an incredible promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, yeah, that's such a great promise here, isn't it? We read it in, in chapter 15. But also, when he quotes here, he quotes from um, chapter Genesis 22, when it was actually ratified and renewed. So which promise was that? So in Genesis 15:5, God said to Abram, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Perhaps at a first glance, we wouldn't see, you know, how incredible that is. But when considering that actually Abram and Sarai, they were very advanced in age, and God had pledged them that this countless offspring would emerge of them, it's quite incredible because 
not only advanced age, they had no vigor in life, they have no energy. They were probably nearer to the deathbed than to the conjugal bed. And then to produce this nation that would be equally in stars in numbers and the grains of sand, it was contrary to all reason. Abram, however, he trusted God. He trusted in the word of God. He feared no disappointment. And yes, he received the promise. He received first with the birth of Isaac. So imagine, you know, this son, how much he was loved. Just for a moment, you know, this advancing age, Sarah was barren, and then they received the son. How long have they waited for him? Then consider the verses of Genesis uh, 22, when God actually tests Abraham's faith by saying to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's, it's almost disheartening, isn't it, when we read that and we think, no, he won't do that. But we know the story. We know that Abraham was faithful. He did as he was told. He trusted that God would find a way out. And as he was just about to take uh, his own son's life, God intervened and stopped it. And then after the events that we all know, God sees that Abraham's faith is exercised, tested, and he ratifies that with an oath. And then that's what we have in mind here. So he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So now, when we go back to Hebrews, and when we read that Abram, having patiently waited, we know that this patient is actually referring to not sitting on the couch waiting for dinner, but actually it's, it's a patient that evokes the concept of endurance, of uh, a struggle of this process of waiting, of uh, sustaining uh, through darkness and through hardness. So the fact, when we think of it, the fact that the, the, this promise was incredible in this so many ways that it's shown to us actually makes it much more God-glorifying. What the author of Hebrew is showing here is that despite this hardness, despite all uh, against all of these odds, God is reliable. God promised Abraham that he would give him an offspring, and he did it exactly as he was told. For the readers, he was saying, see the testimony of history? I said, it's done. So I ask to you tonight, guys, is your faith being shaken tonight? You know, against is it all your circumstances, maybe very private or maybe very public. Are you in doubt of something? Are you suffering? Take a look at Abraham. Take a look at his example. And if you have time, I would suggest you go 
back, read the, the rest of Hebrews, read Genesis as well. We are to follow our heroes of faith. Do not be dismayed. Because even when the odds are against us, we are to trust the word of God, his promises, his commands. We are to stick with it. Through suffering, through hardships, we are to trust God. He will grant us deliverance. What he's doing, actually, is exercising our patience, exercising our faith. I know that it's hard, but we must learn to rejoice in our suffering. One thing that one may say is that Abraham, he didn't see the completeness of this promise. He didn't see this countless offspring emerging. He died before that. But he died in God's faithfulness. So we saw this incredible promise that God made to Abraham. We also see here uh, in what I called an unnecessary oath. So I think it covers uh, 16 to 17, but also the section before. And I would like to digress a little bit for us to think about, uh, is it lawful for a Christian to swear? Of course, when I'm saying swear, I'm not using you know, the common use of using foul words, but also taking oaths of vows. Because we read here in, in chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, for... People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with an oath. So are we to follow this example and to swear as well, and to make oaths? And he's saying these things here, because this is a concept in an attitude that is deeply rooted in Judaism. Um, but also today, we take many oaths today. There are numerous ways in which today we engage with vows. For instance, uh, in movies, don't we see when people are witnessing court, they say, oh, you shall say the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Uh, when people get married, they exchange vows, public vows of their intentions. When we baptize children... As a church and as parents, we are, are vowing that we are to teach them the ways of the Lord. And even when becoming a member of this church, you also take uh, vows, vows of compliance, vows of service. So when we are talking about this, I think people would call to mind the passage in uh, Matthew 5 when Jesus says, um, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's footstool, or by Jesus, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and so on. I think one must not go very far to see what Jesus has in mind here. It's not the swearing or taking oaths for taking oaths, it's, it's, or for the oath itself, but rather for doing it idly. There's a place for solemn oaths in our lives. Not when someone says, for instance, Oh, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear to God. What the person is trying to to do is, out of his own wickedness, trying to borrow credit from someone, from God, from from his mother's grave, as if, um, if they break, if they would go and break 
their vow, that person would be brought into disrepute. Uh, so he's almost trying to let the truthfulness of that person be applied to him. So going back to Hebrews, when we think again, uh, I think throughout the book, as we see the superiority of Christ, but even here in this passage, what we see is this argument from the lesser to the greater. So he was saying, the people, men, do like this, let alone God. So men who are by nature false, they are giving credit when swearing, let alone God. Let alone God. God is the eternal truth. And when men try to swear for something greater, they swear sometimes they consider their mother's grave greater, they consider God greater. God cannot consider anything else greater. So he simply says, surely he he swears or he swore by himself. What a great comfort it is. You know, that God can swear by himself. There's nothing greater. He's totally reliable, totally dependable and trustworthy. And then, as we read in Genesis 15, I think we can go back to this uh, graphic scene, very gruesome scene that we see uh, in, in Genesis 15, where animals are split in half. This, uh, maybe we don't know exactly what is that, but actually in ancient times, uh, to ratify a, a covenant uh, that would be done by solemn rites. So that's described in rich details there. So um, in essence, what is, is saying that when actually this smoking pot fire goes through this, uh, the animals, it shows that that was to happen to any of the parties if lest they fulfill their duties of the covenant. So don't we see here, if you remember the, the passage that we read in Genesis 15, that Abram has been put to a deep sleep. So that does show a great deal of covenantal love, doesn't it? You know, Abram is put to sleep, only God passes through the animals, only God will uh, have the burden of fulfilling um, the duties of the covenant. And again, isn't that what we see in Calvary? Jesus Christ. We are dead in our trespasses. Jesus Christ alone. Bearing our sins. Sustaining the penalty in his own body. And fulfilling the covenant duties. God... He spared Abraham's son when Isaac in the Mount of Moriah, in the land of Moriah. But he did not spare his own son for our sake. If, if Abraham loved Isaac as good as the boy could have been, as longed as he could have been, imagine how much more God loved Jesus, and he did not spare him. He did not spare him for our sake. So I say to you, if you are a believer tonight, I ask you, I urge you that you would trust God, for he is able to fulfill his promises. He goes all the way to fulfill his promises. 
And we are, you are, we are Abraham's seed. We are heirs, as we read here. We are heirs of these promises of God. And God wants to convince you today. All the more, let him reign. Let him bring you peace. For himself, he didn't need to do that. No, he is holy, he is truthful, his word should be sufficient. But he did all of this, all of this story of redemption, because of his love for us. Not only that, even now he has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment that he would do whatever he promised. So we can start to enjoy him right now. But I also speak to you if you are not a believer today. I hope that as we go through these passages, I hope that you're seeing God's faithfulness, God's reliability. I hope that you would seize this opportunity, that you would trust him. He is not like the wind of his times. He's not shakable. He's immutable. His unchangeable character, his counsel is perfect, is good, is true, and it's beautiful. Come to Jesus for he cannot never, ever break his word. So in closing, we see a third point here. So we've seen the incredible promise and unnecessary oath, and we see the certainty that is brought by hope. And I think we see that in uh, verses 18 to 20. I think the image here is almost like an insurance, isn't it? We see the promise and we see the oath putting together, and if you think about insurance, sometimes we insure, we have insurance uh, of our cars, then we have a premium, we put insurance on the premium, and we have our no-claim bonuses, we also cover that with another insurance, so we are um, in peace. So if everything happens, we don't need to pay anything. Uh, I think that's pretty much what God is doing here in this passage. By, when, when he puts this oath alongside the promise, uh, he's doing Nova Plus added to the full measure of things. He's already trustworthy. He has his word. He wouldn't let that be broken by any way. But he, he wants to give us this strong confidence that he will do whatever he promises. God is not man that he shall lie. In Psalm 12, we see that his words are true. His words are pure, like silver tried in furnace, purified seven times. So, by two immutable things, what does he want? He wants us to hold fast to hope. To the hope that is set before us. Then I think we might ask, what is hope then? Uh, We say so many times, oh, hopefully this or hopefully that. But hope that he has in mind here in biblical categories is not wishful thinking. It's not this mere projection, you know, that the future will perhaps sometimes occur as we wish. No, this hope here is a strong assurance of the things that will come to pass. In hope, if you, even in the, the, the way that we use the, the, the words in a common uh, sense or in a common use is required when the circumstances are undesirable. So we hope change. We hope for something better. In Bible, in the Bible, 
hope is mostly used in two ways. One can be the object of our hope. For instance, we say Christ is a hope for eternal life. But here in this passage, and mostly in the Bible, we see that hope is actually referring to future events, to the resurrection of God's people, to the coming of God's kingdom. So hope is actually faith directed towards the future. And I'm not making that up. That's in First Corinthians uh, 13.3. We have this relationship of hope, faith, and love. So this, the author here, he wants us to hold fast to this hope, looking, looking for the future, this assurance of the promises of God. And for me, that's one of the most fascinating um, passages uh, or analogies that, that is used here in the Bible because he uses the analogy of an anchor, doesn't he? We have this, the hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So, if you, if you picture uh, the anchor, we usually picture uh, thinking about a boat and the, what is the anchor used for. It is cast into the deep sea you know, to make the boat stand firm. And that even through turbulent waters, through storms, the, the anchor grants us the sense of security, of comfort, of safety. And isn't the same thing to us, perhaps? We live in these ways of times, you know, a world that is constantly shaking through the waves of, of, of doubts, or of this, this ferocious, actually, storms or, of pain that we, we have, these winds of, of, of despair, of sadness, depression, terrorism, fear. We are surrounded by this negative pressure. There is this overwhelming darkness surrounds us. The author here say, cast your anchors. Cast your anchors towards God. Of course, there's some difference, and the difference are actually very interesting as well in the analogy, because the boat anchor goes down into the sea. Our hope goes up into the heaven. The boat anchor might break with some uh, tempestuous storm, and maybe the ground uh, at the floor of the sea or the river, maybe it's not firm enough, but ours is the rock. is the rock of ages, the rock of our salvation. I steadfast and a sure hope. It remains set, it remains fixed, unaltered. The, the, the anchor of the boat goes into the unseen water. And it's amazing that we even sang this morning as well that anchor of hope is fixed on the invisible God. Didn't we sing this morning? Holy, 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 though the darkness hide in thee, though the eye of sinful men thy glory may not see. It's a beautiful image that we have here. And then he goes into this. Remember that we were talking about the Hebrews having, uh, or the Jews having this concern about the sacrificial system and the temple, we see here another, another picture of that when it says the hope that enters into the curtain. So the Jews were very familiar with this context here, the tabernacle. You know, in the tabernacle there was this place, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was able to, to, to go into. So in preparation for chapter 7, when he discusses this Melchizedekian uh, priesthood of Jesus, he sheds light into this point. 
Because the Jews there, the, the readers, they were probably bewildered with the hidden character of Jesus. Because when he was here on earth, he was veiled in, in, in suffering. And now that he is in glory, as we sang this morning, he is hidden in glory. So they were probably puzzled about that. And also uh, they were probably asking things about uh, the, his entitlement of, of priesthood. Jesus was from the house of Judah. The, the priesthood uh, was from the Aaronic priesthood was from Levi. So the author has all of this in mind when trying to, to uh, respond to these questions. But he does respond. He says that he is from the order of Melchizedek. He goes on later on to explain. But the certainty that we must have here tonight is that with Jesus, we can go into the secret place. We can go into the Holy of Holies. He goes before us. He goes interceding for us, preparing for us. But he also calls us. He goes uh, reaching out his hands for us. And we have his word. We have his never-failing promises. We have the spirit that grants us patience to endure for that moment. He goes up first. He's our forerunner. But we are following him afterwards. He's giving us all of this assurance and this encouragement for the road. I know that times can be tough and circumstances can be difficult. But let our faith be unwavering tonight. I hope God blesses his words. Let us pray.